We all know that Australians are great travellers of all ages and wages, you might say. Well, a veteran UK travel writer and observer has warned the era of cheap overseas holidays just might be endangered. COVID as ever is part of the explanation, but not the only one. And of course, this does distill some pretty big dilemmas. Does cheap mass tourism pose an increasing threat to climate challenge destination? Or does well-priced, thriving tourism actually enhance the conservation, for instance, of animal species and help local communities protect them from big coming changes in climate? It's not simple. And particularly at this time of the year in Australia, that basic question of cost looms large over many of us. So I'll be keen to hear why Chris Haslam, who's chronicled travel for years now for the Sunday Times in London, is sounding so concerned. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Why? What are you suggesting is likely to confront travellers? I think the biggest crisis facing travellers in the short term is going to be COP27, or that's certainly going to be the biggest challenge. I think COP27 is coming up next month, and I think there we're going to be reminded again of of the fact that we're trying to, we've got to achieve what, uh, keep global temperatures to 1.5 degrees. That's the key. And I think at COP27, the news is going to be bad, that we have not made anywhere near enough effort to do that. I don't want to bang on too much about climate change, but the fact is that between now and 2050, we had to achieve 1.5 degrees. We have to get rid of between 24 and 27 gigatons, that's a billion tons of carbon. So far, all the world's promises add up to four gigatons. So we're well short. And I think discretionary spends such as travel are going to become increasingly targeted by by the public, by those concerned about climate change, but also if travel doesn't change by governments who will force legislation on in the form of travel taxes. Um, to make it only possible then for wealthy people to travel? Is that the, is that the upshot of it? Well, yes, Geraldine, that is the upshot of it. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. They would say, um, and people I speak to in in the travel industry agree that um, in many cases, travel has become too cheap. It has become too cheap to go on safari. You wouldn't say that if you saw the price of safaris, but they say it's become too cheap. It's become too cheap to see a tiger in the wild. It's become too cheap to hike in um, in Nepal or not Bhutan. Now, Bhutan's taken action and that's interesting because Bhutan is now charging $250 a day just to be in the country. It may be the case that other nations follow. Rwanda has already done so with the gorilla permits, which are now a staggering $1,500 a day. That's to see a gorilla in the wild for about 40 minutes. Did you say a day um, or, or if you, that, that is per, per, I mean, I've been to see them. Is, are they charging that for a visit, are they? One visit, one permit. So you, I mean, you've been you've been there, so you know what it's like. You all turn up in the morning, you, you're all split into different groups mm. based on your ability, off you walk. You'll walk for somewhere between 20 minutes or three hours. But the moment you see that gorilla, the stopwatch starts. And after 30 or 40 minutes, you're out of there. That's $1,500. When Rwanda did that, uh, I mean, it's, it's half the price in Uganda, by the way. But um, when when Rwanda did that, everyone said, this is despicable. This is making you know, the the opportunity to see a mountain gorilla in the world has been something only for the super rich. It's, a, it's an activity for the elite. It's terrible. It's wrong. And yet it's had 
a, a, a very, very strong conservation effect. You could say that the permit system alone has saved the mountain gorilla because well, well, of the funds it's raged. Well, oh, it, because of the funds it's raged. I was going to ask you, to say, what's the problem with people visiting these places? You've heard of over-tourism. Let's look at, I know we're being a bit Africa-centric, but let's just look at uh, the Maasai Mara in Kenya, the Maasai Mara National Reserve in Kenya. Cheap to get to, extraordinarily popular with people and suffering from unregulation and overpopulation. You could say the same for Yala National Park in, in Sri Lanka, which is one of the best places in the world to see leopards. Because it's cheap, people flood in. Because people flood in, the number of people working there, there's much more competition amongst people. Behaviour is shocking. Last time I was in Yala, I saw a guide vehicle racing to take its people to see a leopard. I saw it hit a mongoose and kill it. To have roadkill in a national park by a wildlife guide is staggering. So uh, too many people is bad for conservation. Too many people is, is bad for communities. It's bad. We, let's take something else. Let's move away from Africa and look at the um, short-term let problem. Now, loads of Australians travelling to Europe will use Airbnb. I'm sure they use mm. Airbnb in Australia as well. Well, it's causing havoc with rentals over here, actually. Too much well, Airbnb there's... is causing absolute havoc with uh, with rental availability and cost. Exactly the same in probably every popular city in the world. It's um, the, the, you know the Airbnb slogan is "Live like a local." In fact, you're living like loads of other tourists because the locals have been moved out to make room for Airbnb. This is another effect of over tourism. In fact, if you want to know, I in. I, I talk about the four horsemen of the tourism apocalypse, which are cheap flights, cruise ships, Airbnb and Instagram. These are the four drivers of over-tourism. These are the things that have made tourism too cheap, and yet the world cannot sustain those levels of, of visitors, in, in not just in fragile sites, but in cities as well. It has rising prices should lower numbers. That's the idea. Is it elitist? On the one hand, yes, it is elitist. But on the other hand, if you really, really want to see a mountain gorilla in the wild, you'll save up and do it. Another example I can offer is Komodo Island. Mm. Up until last year, to go and see to go and see a, um, Komodo, a dragon. Komodo dragon on Komodo Island, it was a couple of dollars. You could just get out of bed and think, mm, I'll do that today. Now the price has gone up so much that if you want to see a Komodo, it hasn't gone up hugely for those of us on Western salaries, but it's gone up enough to make you think about doing it. And if you want to do it, you'll save up and you'll go and do it. That has had the effect of reducing numbers, reducing pressure on the national park, and yet still making the money for conservation. Well, that's the yeah, it's well, going to have to go. Well, let me put the other side of the story because, I mean, I noticed the other day that in some of the um, uh, low-profile places like Malawi, for instance, um, that tourism is really contributing. You know, it doesn't compete with the big, the Kenyas, the Tanzanias and so on and so forth. But it's people going off the beaten track, not terribly expensive, are rescue, they're rescuing the ecosystems of Malawi due to the travellers' money. So, I mean, this can work both ways, can't it? It can. It can work both ways. I mean, let's, let's be clear. Wildlife is an odd term because when you talk about what the so-called charismatic megafauna, otherwise the, the big, big five, five. The, the big species, are they, is it really wildlife? It, it, those species are allowed to exist 
purely because of tourism. Without tourism, there'd be no, there's a, there's a saying in conservation in, and in, in wildlife travel, if it pays, it stays. They've said the same in India about tigers. If you can make money out of those, um, uh, those species, then they can stay and conservation efforts will be made. If you can't make money out of them, what you've got is big creatures occupying areas of land needed for grazing, needed for forestry or needed for farming. Without tourism, those species will go. So there's a lot of pressure at the moment, in, certainly in Europe from certain parts, saying that, you know, that the mathematical answer to reducing greenhouse gases is simply to stop travelling. That's the scientific answer. Just stop flying. Then there'll be no emissions from aviation. It's a simplistic argument because of what you've just said about Mali. We, we as, as travellers, as, as people from the global north with the money to travel, we have made communities around the world utterly dependent on tourism for their livelihood. St Lucia, for example, in the Caribbean, 82% of jobs there are, are in tourism. Without tourism, what would they do? They would lose their livelihoods, they would lose opportunity. So we have an obligation to carry on travelling, but we've also got an obligation to travel more sensitively, travel in, in a state of awareness. And one of the key things that needs to be done is to redefine what constitutes luxury. At the moment, I mean, one thing about luxury travel, or as they call it in the industry, HNWI travel, high net worth individual travel. <laughs> do they? Yeah, they do, sadly. But the, the, the truth about that is that what happens at the HNWI end of the market trickles down to the mass market. It's you can see it in I mean, one of the prime examples is lots of hotels you go to for, for a long time, you know, mid, mid market or even bottom end of the market hotels. There'll be a jacuzzi on the balcony, you know, mm. big deal. Years ago, 20 years ago, that was the height of luxury. I was hearing, you know, that people were putting out press releases because they had jacuzzis on the balcony. <laughs> it's now trickled down. It's the same with, you know, personal butlers. All these kind of things, they're, they're trite examples, but the top end of the market influences the bottom end of the market. Now, the top end of the market represents some of the most conspicuous consumption in the world. Private jets, helicopter transfers, oysters flown in from God knows where because people want oysters, Wagyu beef, possibly from Australia, flown into the Maldives. All the accoutrements of luxury are, are the most demonstrative indicators of, of personal privilege or success. So we aspire to them. You know, sitting on a Maldivian beach, sipping French champagne, eating an oyster that's been flown in, I don't know, from France as well, probably. It's, it, that is a definition of luxury. That has to change. We need to, the industry, we cannot wait for the public to ask for it because as long as there's a business class seat on sale, they'll buy it. So the industry has to take the initiative and say, you know what, that's an old-fashioned type of luxury, and that is now as immoral as drink driving, oh. because what you're doing is actively damaging the planet. Gosh, are you, are you going to have a job left then? You're talking well, yourself out of a job? Yeah, well, I might have to volunteer to go and look after mountain gorillas in, in Rwanda <laughs> or something. But it's, it really, this is what has to happen now. We, I said at the beginning that you know, we, we've got four gigatons of, of, of commitment of greenhouse gas, of carbon. We need to, between 24 and 27. Everybody's got to do their bit. And if the travel industry doesn't start changing itself, then it will have change forced upon it. There's a, there, sorry, I'm banging on here. Um, but 
the it's it's early in the morning in England and I've probably had too much coffee. <laughs> well, I just want to know one thing. How long have we got then before you think? I mean, there's a lot of people booking right now in Australia or planning or thinking whether they can get on a flight, these exceptionally expensive flights. Um, you know, how long do you think this process that you're describing realistically is going to take? What, you mean to redefine luxury? Yeah, to... Uh, well, to, to make, you know, is cheap travel going to be sustainable, do you think? Is, are we really facing something in the next two years that will fundamentally change? Because that will really matter to Australians. I really wish, Geraldine, I could say, yes, something will change, but it won't. Um, as long as the, the political and the corporate will doesn't really exist to do it. Um, certainly the public have shown... No real indicator. I was reading a report from the Economist um, Intelligence Unit uh, this morning saying that 37% of Chinese people have now decided they don't want to fly anymore. 22% of Europeans have decided they don't want to fly anymore. I mean, it's a growing number of people who are realising the, the issue. Of, as I said earlier, just giving up flying, that's not the answer. We've got to learn how to fly smarter, you know, fly less, stay longer, put more money in the destination. I don't think, honestly, there's going to be significant changes in the next two years. But what I would say is that people will start to understand the transformative power of travel as opposed to the extractive nature of, of luxury travel as it was in the past. They'll realise it has to be something that contributes. And there is actually a really simple test. It's, it is so simple. Before you travel anywhere, before you, you, know, you get on the plane to do your grand tour of Europe and you're looking at all your accommodation options and your travel options, you just ask yourself, will my trip, even fractionally, will the holiday I'm about to take leave the destinations that I'm going to in a better or worse state than it was before I arrived? Companies tour operators, travel agencies who are committed to sustainability will be working on what's known as this triple P um, premise, which is planet, people and profit. It's called the triple bottom line. It means that these companies consider the benefits to society, community and the environment as important as the profits they put in the bank. So they put equal weights on all. You can find these, I mean, look at B Corp certified travel agencies. You've got one of the best companies in the world over there for sustainability. Look at what they do, look at their values, and then look at the other companies who you're thinking of booking with to come to Europe to go anywhere. And you can be certain that your dollar, your tourism dollar, is going to the benefit of the planet rather than the detriment. All right. All right, Chris, that's a, a good polemic there from you. <laughs> from you, Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye. Chris, Chris Haslam, a travel writer for the Sunday Times.